In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. Welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh, here as we come here with practical tools to live your Catholic faith in our modern world of today. And we brought back my good friend, the Reverend Father John Flatter. Welcome back to the Catholic Toolbox show. Thank you, George, for having me again. Thank you for being with me. And uh, I wanted to check in and see how your book is going, uh, Life After Death. Uh, and it was, it was a great launch. It was launched all over Sydney, and I'm hearing some great successful stories there. But uh, let's go into it. And for those who haven't heard of it before, what is the book, and how is it going at the moment? Let me um, show you the cover. This is the cover, Dying to Live, Reflections on Life After Death. When we started writing, it was um, early last year, that is 2021, at the suggestion of a friend, my idea for that title was something like, is there life after death? Something in that line. And then I spoke about the, the book and the title, my prospective title to a number of friends. And one of them said, how about dying to live? And I said, that's it. Great title. It's rather catchy. So the book was launched, as you say, in several places in Sydney. There's another launch ideally to come. And I was in contact with the publisher, Connor Court, Anthony Capello just in the last few days, and he wants to organize a launch in Brisbane and another one in Melbourne. And then we've had something like a launch, but uh, I gave a talk in Hobart when I was down there on chapter five, which is the existence of God, proofs from contemporary science and the origin of the universe and the origin of life and so on. So the book has been launched. As far as I'm aware, it's selling very well in the sense that many people tell me they're buying multiple copies to give to friends. And one of the follow-ups to that, which is very interesting, is a friend who's an engineer with a municipal council in Sydney. And he bought multiple copies. He wanted to give them to some of his staff, including, as he said right at the beginning, two Muslim ladies. So one of those two Muslim ladies is from Indonesia. She's around her 40s. She's not and a practicing Muslim, but a cultural Muslim, at least growing up in that faith. And she went to a Catholic school, it seems, in Indonesia. So now she's working for this council and she is taken to the book. She's reading it. She likes it very much. And she's asking questions upon questions about the Catholic faith, including she asked, can I go to mass with you? Because this engineer goes to mass at lunchtime 
in the uh, in the nearby parish church. So she's gone every Friday with him for the last, I don't know, weeks or months and keeps on asking good questions about the faith. So he's getting concerned that she might want to become a Catholic. And if she does, he says, what's the next step? And I said, well, that's easy because we just go back to my other publication, the DVDs and book Journey into Truth, Instructions in the Catholic Faith. So that would be the next step for her possibly if she wants to proceed. Anyway, that's one of the stories from the, the non-believers. There's lots of feedback from the believers, the Catholics who buy the book, but now we want to get more stories from that second wave of the, the non-believers or the non-practicing Catholics or whatever and see how they're responding to it. Haven't heard much as yet besides this story of the Muslim lady, but let's pray for her because maybe there'll be a conversion there and that would be a very nice outcome. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, often the fruit of our work won't be known till we reach heaven, God willing, one day. We'll know really the fruits of our work. I mean, there's so many, so many people who we may have touched throughout our lives and continue to touch, especially through your book, uh, that we don't know of. But, but the work of God is at hand here. I mean, it's just, that's just a tremendous story. A, a great example of personal apostolate in the workplace and uh, I mean, that's really what the art of practical Catholicism is about. It's about taking action, practical tools, taking action, practical resolutions. And I mean, it's a great job uh, with that engineer who's, who's taking action with his faith. And it, it, we often don't have to answer too many questions and we can just hand a book. I mean, you've done the work for us, Father. Yeah, you just give the book and say, look, if you're interested, have a read. One of the interesting stories on this now, I... I don't know whether this person has picked up the book, but I was visiting a, a couple in Hobart. They're, they're getting on in years. The man would be in his 80s and the wife perhaps a little bit younger. And they said they have an atheist daughter who is very um, vehemently anti-God and very woke, as even her mother says, using that terminology. And I said, is she likely to come to visit you because she's living in New South Wales? And I said, and they said, oh, yes, she'll come. And I said, well, what you do is you have the book. You just leave it on the, on the lounge room table. And then if she comes and visits you and she picks it up and she says, what is this? She says, oh, that's a book written by a friend of yours, of ours, but you wouldn't be interested in that. And I think that sort of psychology, you wouldn't be interested in that, is a ticket for her when her parents have gone to bed to pick it up and see what it's all about. Now, whether this atheist will read it and, and be changed by it. it's the grace of God in the end because as you say it's we do what we can humanly and God has to give the increase and and as you say we'll hear a few stories but there'll be so many more that we'll never know until we get to heaven and one of these the uh, very nice comments and I think it's Saint Teresa of Lisieux in her in her last conversations which is the name of one of her books speaks about when we get to heaven, there will be no indifferent glances because people will meet the people that have helped them get to heaven. And that might've been our ancestors, our grandparents, great grandparents who were praying for us, but it might be someone younger than us too, that we helped get to heaven. And when they get there, they can, they can give us a big hug or whatever, not that there's bodies there to give hugs to, but people do recognize each other in heaven, which is one of the surprising things from near-death experiences that people go to heaven and they see their loved ones and say well there's no bodies there how do they recognize somebody in their soul well that's a mystery but we'll find out when we get there 
So let's delve in a little bit into the whole idea of life after death. Let's let's zoom into that and let's let, what are the what are the things that we're going to pro, be approached with um, as we near death. What are the last things, Father, uh, that we should be focusing on in our understanding of the last things um, approaching death? The first thing is that there is going to be an ongoing existence because many people will say, well, we just die and then they bury us and that's it. And in the book, there's that reference to Stephen Hawking, who at one stage when he wrote A Brief History of Time, obviously believed in God. He said, if we know this, we'll know the mind of God. But then in his second book, The Grand Design, he said, and this perhaps from an interview that was done at the time of the publication of the book too, he says, I don't believe in life after death. We die and that's it. Perhaps we live on in the genes that we pass on to our children or in the memories that we leave. And I wrote in the book that he has now died and he will know whether there's life after death. And so the first thought as someone nears death is I'm going to continue to exist. And we must be prepared for that. I was interviewed recently and this interview is on the Opus Dei website. And the, the interviewer asked me, what are these, the stages or the thoughts that people go through as they near death? And I said, I, I really think that people, even who believe in God, who believe in life after death, as they get closer to that moment, to the extent that they're conscious, conscious and aware, are probably somewhat apprehensive, just wondering what is going to happen. Is this all real? And then they will die. The soul goes on, as we've seen in all those near-death experiences, and, and they will meet God in the judgment. So the first reality is the judgment. And there we're going to see ourselves as God sees us. And by the way, that gives rise to the um, commentary that I'm writing another book, which is on the same theme. It's a sequel to Dying to Live. And the way I envision the book, it's a sequel to the, the final chapter of Dying to Live, which is what must I do? So the reader having got to the final chapter is now wondering, okay, I believe in God. I believe in life after death. I believe in heaven. What must I do? How is God going to judge me by how I saw myself or by how he sees me? Is there some objective standard by which he can judge me? And that's the beginning of this book, which I envision to have on the cover at this stage anyway, at the top in small print, sequel to Dying to Live then in fairly large print, but not as large as the line below it, which is the title, Preparation for the Judgment. And then the big title is the final exam. So the idea is we take many exams in life. We've all taken many exams, primary school, secondary, perhaps tertiary. And in many of those cases, it didn't make too much difference whether we passed or not. But there's one exam, and this is the final exam of our life. We cannot afford to fail this one. So this is a book about how to prepare for that, speaking about objective morality, the natural law, 
a long chapter on that. I've written the better part of the better part of half of it, a little bit less, comparing it with the number of words and pages in Dying to Live. I want it to be about the same length. So we'll talk about various aspects of morality, like the role of conscience and how we must form conscience, how we should follow it. Then the emotions, their influence on our moral actions, the various types of sin. And then we go into the Ten Commandments, which I justify by saying, look, this was given by God to Moses, who was Jewish. Christians follow the Ten Commandments. But when all is said and done, they're the natural law. They're all based on the natural law. So it's, it's precepts of morality that all religions and all peoples follow, like it's wrong to kill an innocent person. It's wrong to tell a lie. It's wrong to commit adultery. It's wrong to, to lie under oath in court and to defile and de defame someone. So basic principles of morality will go through them in a way that's, that is understandable by a non-Catholic, by a non-believer. So that's the, uh, the idea of this next book, which might be titled The Final Exam. And we can all pray for that. I'll ask people to pray which I did when writing Dying to Live, get people to pray while I'm writing it, that I can write something that will be readable and understandable and that people will continue reading and not just throw the book away. And, and then when the book is out, I get people to pray that people will buy it and read it and be helped by it. So um, the first reality after death is the judgment, is the final exam. And God is not going to judge us by how we see ourselves, but by how he sees us. And in Dying to Live is that story of the American priest, Father Stephen Shire, ordained, as I remember, 1985 in the state of Kansas in the U.S. And for 12 years, he was a priest. He was an active priest. But as he says in an interview, I never preached on dogma or morals. I only preached on love, peace, enjoy because that's what everybody wanted to hear and he said and when we got, I got together with my fellow priests I just wanted to be one of the boys we never talked about spiritual matters we talked about football okay then he has this head-on collision he's thrown onto the pavement he's unconscious part of his scalp is torn off he's taken to the nearby hospital they give him something like a 15 percent chance to live but his brain has been damaged so undoubtedly he will be suffering from some mental impairment. He's flown by air helicopter to, or air ambulance to Wichita, the capital. And there they couldn't do anything more for him, but again, gave him that about 15% chance to live. Well, some months later, he was still alive. He was back in his parish and he wasn't brain damaged. And then he was, he was saying mass and the gospel was the barren fig tree. It hasn't borne fruit. Cut it down, says the owner. And the caretaker says, but if we water it and manure it, give it one more year and perhaps it will bear fruit. If not, then cut it down. So then that as he reads that gospel, he is startled because as he describes it, the page seemed to be illumined, enlarged, and to come off the lectionary towards me. He finishes the mass, goes back to the presbytery, and then remembers a near-death experience that he had had 
at the time of the accident. He said, I found myself caught up before the judgment seat of God. And I heard the voice of Jesus. I didn't see him, but I, I heard him. He took me through my life and my sins. He says, and all I could say was, yes, yes, yes. He says, when I committed those sins, I always had an excuse. But now in the face of the truth, there was no place for excuses. At the end of that, Jesus showed me that what I deserved was eternity in hell. This was an active priest and he saw this as the reality and he accepted it because he said, I had unrepented, unconfessed and unforgiven serious sins. And with that, he was going to hell until he says, I heard the most sweet, gentle woman's voice I have ever heard say, son, spare his life and his immortal soul. And Jesus said, but mother, this is what he deserves for his sins. He's been a priest for 12 years for himself and not for me. And then the woman's voice said, but if we give him more grace and strength, perhaps he will change. If not, he's yours. And then she says, there was a pause. And Jesus said, mother, he's yours. And then he, his life was spared. He came back to his parish and he's now a very fine priest. But a priest saw himself going to hell. And so the judgment will reveal the reality, not how we saw ourselves, but how God sees us. So that's that first reality. And then there's heaven, purgatory, and hell. And most people in a near-death experience go to heaven and experience all the joy, all the warmth, the light. Sometimes they see God, they see loved ones. It's just unalloyed happiness, and they don't want to come back. A few see hell because that's where they would have gone. Now, these are people that, that didn't die, but they would have gone to hell except they repented before they died. And then a few pass through purgatory or, or see purgatory from the outside. And there's the story of Gloria Polo, the Colombian orthodontist who has visited Australia. And she was struck by lightning, walking with her nephew across the campus of the university in Bogota. He was killed. She was burned inside and out, but she survived. And she saw her parents when she passed purgatory. She saw her parents both in purgatory. Mm -hmm. And then she talked about what would have sent her to hell, except she was repentant. And there were lots of sins that she mentioned. And she saw heaven. And then she came back to earth, of course, and has spent the rest of her life telling people about her experience and about the reality of life after death. So let no one doubt that there's life after death. And what awaits us is a loving, forgiving God. But we do have to be sorry for our sins, too. I mean, it's really a real wake-up reality for people to, to understand like what you said before that we need to focus on how god sees us not how we see ourselves or we see how god will see us often many people today especially within the church um well let's say within within the walls of the church often there's 
we, we mold the way we would like God to view us or the standard by which God will judge us. And we can deceive ourselves very easily to think that we're doing the will of God. But in reality, we're worshipping ourselves. I mean, how often is that a problem today, especially for, for those Catholics who still remain within the church, Father? Well, I don't want to make any judgments or generalizations because you have to look at each soul. Uh, but I think there'll be quite a few who, who hope for the best. They're not living the best lives. Hopefully they're going to confession or they're saying an act of contrition. And I personally, I really think that a lot of people who are not living well, are not going to mass, will be saved in the end because God will give them that final choice, that final grace of final perseverance, and they will repent of their sins and be saved. Now, they might spend some time in purgatory, but we, we cannot be too optimistic and think that God is like us. When I sometimes yeah. preach about this, I will say the benefits of confession, because there we confess our sins, we having, having examined our conscience, the priest hears our sins. If he has any questions about our sorrow or about clarity about what we just confessed, he asks us, he makes the judgment. And then he says, I absolve you from your sins. And we know that our sins are forgiven. Whereas if we didn't have personal confession, <clears throat> anyone, could say, anyone could say, I don't need to go to confession. I confess my sins directly to God but you don't hear that you are absolved. And I think people's mindset in that moment could very well be, God, you do forgive me, don't you? If I were you, I would forgive me. That's what they're thinking. If exactly, I you, if I were you, if I were you, yeah. <laughs> we roll by, we put God into our standards. I mean, but Father, here's a more important question. How should we view god's attitude towards judging us is is god a merciful uh, a merciful uh, god or is he a just judge we often hear depends on which saint you 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 read you know such as um sister faustina kolaska uh, the different fathers of the church and uh, some portray god as more merciful or, or our lord as a just judge or a balanced judge what's the right equilibrium that we should have towards you know, God being merciful, but again, we do have to repent. And there is a standard that we have to live by. And we have to fear, uh, work our salvation in fear and trembling. I think that's often the problem many people today face. Okay, what's the balance? Is God really merciful? Uh, but uh, how strict is he? Uh, what's, the, what's the right balance there? Okay, now the right source of information is not the saints, saintly though they may be. It is scripture. It is God himself speaking. And even in the Old Testament, he is ever rich in mercy. But then we go to the new. And in, in John chapter 5, Jesus says that he will be the judge because he is the son of man. The father has entrusted judgment to the son because he is the son of man. And that means he is human as well as divine. He knows human nature. He has lived amongst us. He has forgiven so many sinners, a woman in adultery. 
And this is the judgment that we can expect. Jesus, ever rich in mercy. And I think if we want a real testimony from our Lord on who God is in the judgment, it is the parable of the prodigal son. Here we have the young man who wants to go away and try freedom, try a different life. He is happy undoubtedly at home with his brother, with his dad, with his mother who is not mentioned and the servants are there. But maybe he finds it boring day after day, the same thing. He wants to go off and try something different. And although the, the parable doesn't say it, when I preach on this, I always say that father, that loving father would have done everything to dissuade his son from going. Son, consider what you're doing. I can give you the inheritance. You might get robbed. You might lose it. You might spend it wastefully. You might get into trouble. Consider this. But I will not stand in your way because God allows us to stray off the path. That father could have built a wall around the farm so that his son could not get out. But no, he's a father. He respects the freedom of his son. The son goes off, wastes his money, lives loosely. And what is the attitude of that father? And this is God. He runs out, welcomes him back, hugs him, kisses him, puts the, the sandals on his feet, the ring on his finger, the, the, the robe, and that's killed the fatted calf, and let's eat and make merry, for this son of mine was lost in his bond, was dead and is alive. The welcome back. This is God. This is the judgment. Provided we come back, as that young man did, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be taken as your son. Take me in as your hired servant. And he didn't even have a chance to finish all of that before his father welcomed him back. So God is ever merciful. We have to be sorry for our sins, of course. But we cannot contrast the God of wrath and, and justice with the God of mercy. He is just too. And our Lord says that in John chapter 5. And my judgment is just because I listened to the one who sent me. So it's always going to be just, which means fair. And, and that can mean too, that some people will go to purgatory, some will go a longer time to purgatory or have more suffering there. Others can go straight to heaven. I mean, uh, that's quite a nice balance there, that, that God is indeed merciful. He's more, is he more merciful than judgmental? Well, the word judgmental means for us making unwarranted judgments when we don't have enough information to judge someone. God knows everything. He, he is a judge, and it is fair. His, his judgment is just, as our Lord says. But that doesn't mean vengeful or punishing beyond what is due. And I think... Well, some of the fathers of the church, I have a, a quote in my files about how God's mercy is shown even in souls who go to hell <laughs> because this, this, this saint, uh, father of the church, I think it was, says he could have punished this person far more severely in hell because there are varying degrees of punishment in hell as there are happiness in heaven and, and various degrees of punishment and length of time in purgatory. So God is merciful at all stages, but he is fair and just too. So 
we'll find out in the judgment, but let's prepare well and not take anything for granted. Oh, I've got plenty of time, we say, I'm young, I'm healthy. We don't know when and how God is going to call us. So let's be prepared every day. And let's talk about three practical tools this week. How can people take action listening to the last things? I mean, facing the reality of the world, how can we take action now for those listening here tonight who, who are probably bewildered by what you're saying and you've opened up their conscience and, and, and really rocked, <laughs> rocked their world listening to this? I mean, I'm, I'm always renewing my commitment to, to focusing on death. I mean, often the saying goes around of memento mori. That means uh, the moment or the hour of death. Um, yeah. But for people listening tonight, how can they take action practically to start taking seriously and focusing on the reality of death and what awaits them afterwards and then grow their relationship with our Lord through facing this reality and acknowledging the reality of the last things? Yeah. The first thing I would always say is be in the state of grace, meaning if you have committed a mortal sin, you can regain the state of grace simply by an act of perfect contrition, which means sorrow of love. And practically every act of contrition that anybody will learn is expresses that idea of sorrow of love. One that I say, says to God, because you are so good and worthy of all my love. That's why I'm sorry. So do that get to confession so that we're living always in the state of grace then whenever god wants to call us we will be ready and then of course commit fewer sins because it's it's sin in the end that will take us to purgatory if we die in the state of grace but we are imperfectly purified we will go to purgatory and that can be years it could be months we don't know but let's do what we can to avoid committing those sins, especially bigger sins. And that means avoiding the occasions of those sins. And for many people now, the internet is a great near occasion of sin. It might be drinking too much. It might be illicit relationships that they have to cut off. But whatever occasions of sin there might be, let's get rid of them from our life. We, we want God's love rather than the love of pleasure or the love of a person that we can't have a relationship with. So commit fewer sins and then more penance to make up for our sins. We don't know, and I always ask this question, in fact, my, my latest meditation on my blog, if anybody wants to find it, it's just Father Flatter blog or Flatter blog or Flatter meditations in Google, it comes up straight away. The last one, is a meditation on the parable of the Pharisee and the publican in the temple. And then I raise the question there that I often do in preaching on this. If I were to die today, let us say, I know I'm not going to hell because I love God, I'm in this state of grace. However, am I certain that I would not go to purgatory, that I am going to heaven? Nobody can be certain about that. We don't know. Let's do more penance, good deeds, all of our good deeds, all of our prayer, all of our acts of charity, all of our acts of self-denial, all of this whittles away 
the debt of temporal punishment prepares us perhaps to go straight to heaven when we die. So these are practical things. That is, first, be sorry for your sins, go to confession, live always in the state of grace, avoid the serious sins and avoid the venial sins too, which lead to the serious sins and avoid especially the occasions of those sins. And then be more prayerful, be more penitential. Then we're preparing very well whenever God wants to call us. We will have our lamps lit like the wise virgins and not the oil gone out and the lamps gone out when they knock on the door and he says, I do not know you. We don't want to hear that. So we'll be leaving the link to Father John Flader's blog uh, here uh, on the episode, and that is fatherfladerblog.com or Father Flader. No, yeah, it's um, fatherfladerblog.com, I think it is. Yes, yes but um, you don't need anything. You just put Flutterblog or Flutter Meditation, F-L-A-D-E-R. Excellent. And many people can actually read a lot of your work in the Catholic Weekly, the Sydney Catholic Weekly newspaper. You're a columnist there uh, every week answering questions. And you're also the author of quest the Question Time series, where you answer different questions each week very, very eloquently. And, uh, and Father, when will your, your second volume be coming out, um, which, which is linked to uh, Dying to Live? It is my hope and expectation, and I think I can achieve this, that both the final exam and question time six, which is another 150 questions and answers on the faith, that will bring the total to 900. Both of those could be out early next year. Excellent. I have no doubt you'll finish it in time. <laughs> well, I have to find the time, which I have very little of, but when you intend on doing something, when you've got an hour, you, you put it to good use. And I'd spend my hours writing this book or writing the columns for the Catholic Weekly. That one of the recent columns in the Weekly was with reference to the proposal from the Plenary Council in Australia to expand the use of the third rite of penance, which is general absolution without prior confession. And I argue there that I think it's highly unlikely that the Vatican would enlarge the use because the terms in which it can be used are very, very strict. The only terms and conditions of, of necessity. And that secondly, the, the hundreds of people that I hear as confessions of every month, those people would not want it. They want personal confession. And the many priests that I know who hear many confessions, they would not be in favor of it either. We have to preach more on confession. Absolutely. And I think, uh, I think it's just completely irrelevant to our time. Uh, I think people want genuine repentance. Uh, I think it's just a very irrelevant thing to bring up uh, at, this, at this time. People want confession. So folks, get back to confession. Get back in the state of grace. Stay in the state of grace. Commit fewer sins. And what was the third practical tool, Father? More prayer and more penance. Yeah, more just good life, really good life and do more penance and then we're wake, making up for our sins and we can... And examination of conscience. Examination of yeah, and conscience. That is fundamental. Do that every night. Very, very important. Thanks for that suggestion. A couple of minutes, a very helpful exercise of piety. Excellent. Thank you, Father, for being with me here on the Catholic Toolbox. 
If you want to um, re-listen to the show, you can go to the podcast anywhere where you get your podcast or go to thecatholictoolboxshow.com if you can leave us with a blessing, Father. Yes, well, I bless everybody who is listening and watching and, and all our relatives and friends, especially those who are more in need because they're sick or they might be dying or they might be very far from God. We bless them too and pray that God will bring them closer to him. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you all and remain forever. Thank you for listening to the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh. Until next week, God bless, take care, and take action. In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity.